We'll open up to John chapter 13. John 13, I'm going to read verses 1 through... Let's see here. Where do I want to go? I don't know. I'll stop when I get there. Keep, let's go. <clears throat> now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Verse 2. And during supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose from supper. And he laid his outer garment, he laid aside his outer garment and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And he came to Simon Peter and said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I'm doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I don't wash your feet, you have no share with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but it is completely clean. And you are, com- you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was about to betray him. That is why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put his outer garment and resumed his place, uh, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also to wash one another's feet. For I I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. And if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Let's end there. Lord, we ask that as we uh, approach your word here now, Lord, that you would just... uh, wash us and cleanse us and help us to understand what it is that you have for us as you're redeemed. And we pray that uh, there would be a mighty work of your Holy Spirit in the heart and the life and the mind and the actions of your church. In your name, amen. So John 13, pick up in John 13. As I mentioned, kind of there's a shift in the Gospels of John, but really in John 13, it really shifts. John shift up to John 13, so chapters 1 through 12, kind of take place over the three, three and a half years of Jesus' ministry on earth. John 13 through 17 takes place in the last couple of hours of Jesus' life before he gets crucified. So John spends a considerable amount of time relaying what is happening in that upper room in the last moments right before Jesus is betrayed and crucified. So the next five chapters is really uh, important to John. And to set the stage, John lets us know in verse 1 that what's taking place is in the upper room. And it was before the Feast of Passover. So uh, again, the Feast of Passover, how many of you are familiar with the Feast of Passover? If you were a Jew, this is something you went to every single year in Jerusalem to celebrate, and basically it's where you, remember, you remembered how God saved you as a nation out of the bondage of Egypt, which happened, you know, like 2,000 years before. But as, as many of you know, God brought 10 plagues upon Egypt because Pharaoh would not let the people of God go. 
They were brutally oppressed and all these types of things. And so God brought a series of 10 plagues through Moses until the 10th plague. And the 10th plague was, was really horrible in that God executed every firstborn male, both, uh, um, both human and, and animal, uh, that people had in Egypt, if they did not have the sacrificed blood of a lamb on the doorpost of their home. I mean, this is accumulated wrath, basically. And so the Jews who applied the blood of the, the, the lamb to the doorpost of their heart, when the destroying angel whom God sent to go execute this came through the land of Egypt, he would see the blood on the doorpost, and it was a sign for that to pass over them. And that's what the Passover was, that they were passed over in God's judgment. Pretty cool. And so uh, if you don't see the analogies, they're coming, uh, connecting there to Christ. And so God finally relented, I mean, so Pharaoh finally relented and let the people of Egypt, uh, let the, the, the Jews go. But then he chased after them. We know the story. And so to commemorate the Passover, all the Jews, they gathered together in Egypt, just as they did in Egypt, in Jerusalem. That night, they gathered together in their homes or the rented spaces that they had, and they had this Passover meal with a sacrificed lamb and all this, and they were gathered together. They had cups there that had the various meanings. They ate unleavened bread because they didn't have time to bake it because they had to go. They had bitter herbs to remind them of Egypt. There's all this symbology the lamb that was sacrificed so that they could go free and be escaped and be escaped from the bondage of Egypt, right? And so they're here to remember this. And Jesus is gathered together with his disciples in this upper room for the final Passover because within the day, he would be the Passover lamb that would be sacrificed on Israel's behalf. Wild, wild stuff here as you're looking at this. So this is Thursday night. Jesus would be sacrificed on a Friday, that Passover. Sabbath being on Saturday, Jesus rise again on Sunday. So John says in verse 1, Now therefore, uh, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. John is showing us really a dramatic shift here. If you remember, uh, it, it points out time and time again, Jesus points it out time and time again, or John does actually, whenever Jesus runs into trouble, it would say, it is not his hour. They would try to make him king and he knew what they wanted to do and he escaped them for it was not his hour. They would try to arrest him and he would escape because it was not his hour. And what do we, what do we find out here in John 13:1? He knew this was his hour, his hour to depart out of this world to the father. It was his time to die. Jesus knew it was time to die. Everything that was transpiring according to God's plan. And and we need to keep this in mind. Jesus is not taken by surprise on anything that's going on at any time in all of this. I mean, he's already talking about his death way before, talking to the disciples. He knows Judas is going to betray him. He knows the whole thing. He's even telling the disciples the plan, and they're not picking up on it whatsoever. I mean, three of them are even up on the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus is talking to them about what's going to transpire, uh, Moses and Elijah, and, they, and Peter, and you know, he, he builds the tabernacles, and he blows it again. But anyways, this is, this is, it's not taking Jesus by surprise when Satan enters Judas in just a few verses at this dinner. Or when Judas betrays Jesus with a, with a kiss on the cheek. Jesus knew the betrayal. He knew the rest. He knew... 
the sham trial that was held by the elders. He knew what the elders of Israel were going to do. He knew that his beard was going to be pulled out. He knew that he was going to be mocked. He knew he, knew he was going to be beaten with stripes. He knew he was going to be crowned with thorns. He knew that they would hit him and say, prophesy. He knew all of these things. And if you were reading your Bible, you would know too. He knew he would die by crucifixion. Prophesied a thousand years earlier, or 700 years earlier, not even invented yet. He knew he'd be pierced to his side. He knew all these things. He knew it was coming. He knew it was his hour. As we read in a couple of weeks, uh, as we're going to read in a couple of weeks, back in John uh, 12, oh, we read a couple of weeks ago, actually, John 12, 27, Jesus said, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? It's for this purpose that I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Jesus knows exactly what is going on. He is headed straight towards the cross, willingly, walking into the, uh, the buzzsaw that is ahead of him. And John, who is writing this many years later, he prefaces it all as he is about to tell us all what's going to happen by saying that he loved us to the end. This is, what Jesus, this is what John's thinking about. As he thinks back to this time when he's sitting in the room and he's thinking back to this moment when Jesus washes his feet and then he begins to dialogue with him that night, he's just consumed with the love of God. He's like, we were so out of it. We totally did not get it. We missed everything. And he just absolutely loved us to the end. He completely and thoroughly loved us. And that word end there, that mean, it means complete. It means total. He totally, absolutely, perfectly loved us. John's just blown away by this. And that ultimate expression of love, of how he loved them, it culminated in the cross and that he died for them. And Jesus begins to say, he washes his feet as a picture of them to say, this is what I'm doing, follow me. And that's the big picture here. Jesus loved them so completely, it culminated in the cross. And you have to keep in mind the disciples, they really don't get it. I, I take complete joy in this, sadly, but they don't understand that it is time, it's his time. They're oblivious. John tells us later in the chapter, uh, in the last chapter, sorry, chapter 12, in verse 16, that they didn't understand the significance of Jesus coming into Jerusalem that last time in the, tri the triumphal entry with all the verses, the significances of, of him coming in on the donkey and the palm branches and all that stuff. So they didn't get it. They didn't understand. He said, but they would after he was risen again. They're clueless about Jesus coming to suffer and die, even though he told them, and they would eventually get it, though. In just a few verses, Jesus tells Peter and the disciples that they, under, they don't understand why he's washing their feet. He tells them, you don't understand what I'm doing, but you will. And that cluelessness, that's just totally the disciples. And the only reason why I'm mocking them is because I'm relating to them. Anybody else? It's like they're walking with Jesus, they're all in, but they are clueless to the big picture. And, 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 and he loved them anyways. Right?
They're in this room. It's his last night. Jesus is gathered together. He sat on the cross. You've got Judas in the room who's going to betray him. You've got Peter in the room who's going to deny him. You've got the disciples who do not understand anything. They're going to scatter and they're going to leave him. He is headed toward the cross. He's going to love them anyways. And here he is, and they are arguing. Luke tells us that they are arguing at that table about who's the greatest. That's what's going on. I mean, this is not a good staff meeting or whatever, you know what I mean? <clears throat> you know, it's like arguing about donuts and coffee or whatever it is, and it's like, man, there's people, like, we're going to die tomorrow. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it's just, it's, they're oblivious to this, and John is looking back on this going, man, how much did he love us? How much did he love us? I didn't realize it at the time when I watched him do what he did, but now I get it. Oh, God, thank you for loving me. And this is why he doesn't mention himself all the way through this. I mean, do you see that? Like, he's the disciple. He calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved all the time. He writes about love more than any of the other Gospels. Book, book first, second, first John is just littered with love. He can't run away from it. He was just blown away about how much God loved him. And at this point, guys, they're, they're clueless. They're absolutely clueless. And John's looking back, knowing the full picture, and he starts that ja- chapter 13, says, he loved us till the end. Those he has out of the world. And he knew that he was one of those out of the world as a contrast to Judas. His love for us, church, is, uh, is perfect. Those, for those of us who are chosen out of the world, you know, I, I don't know about you, but I take comfort in that. I don't get it all. Do you guys get it all? Thankful that he gets it. But you know, Paul understood this love. Apostle Paul, the total love that the Lord had for his sheep, and he articulated this to the church in Rome. Paul, as well as the apostles, there's a lot of those in Rome who were about to experience some serious persecution, being eaten by lions, being lit on, uh, lit up as lamp posts in the night as they were dipped in oil and burned alive, and all these things that went on. This, Paul describes the things that they would go through. He says persecution, famine, nakedness, tribulation, distress, danger, the sword, just to name a few, right? And you'd have to wonder in those circumstances, where, where's God in all of this? Does he, does he love me? And Paul says in chapter 8 of Romans, verse 31 uh, through 19, I think, or 37 through 19, he says, it's 37 through 19, I'm a bit dyslexic there, 37 through 39, he says, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor elections, nor political situations, nor social status, nor Whatever you got going on, or anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul's point is that if God loved us by sending his son to die for us while we were yet sinners, if his love is so perfect, so complete, what's going to separate us from that love? You know? And John is speaking of that love culminating in the cross. He loved us to the end, to the uttermost. He loved them 
and he loves you in Christ Jesus. Those who are his, called out from the world. Are you his? Are you called out from the world? Then this is your promise too. If you notice, the disciples did not deserve it. They're clueless. He chose them, he led them, he loved them. I love that about him. They didn't even realize the significance all that time of what was going on, and Jesus loved them. Every day up until that act of love was culminated in the cross in just a few hours. And here they are in this upper room called this upper room discourse. Uh, Jesus, he loves them. And now Jesus is going to give them that model of that love through washing their feet. But before you do, look at verses 2 through 4. It says, During supper, the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him all things to his hands, that he had come from God and was going to, back to God, he rose up from supper. So real quickly, verse 1 has this beautiful declaration that John says, man, he loved us to the end. And what's the very next verse? Judas betrays. Satan has got one of them. He's filled them. He's filled their heart. He already knows what's going on. And, and so there's this backdrop that John, if you haven't noticed in the book of John, it starts with the theme of light penetrating the darkness. And this is what John is doing all throughout the, the whole deal. Jesus is light in the, in the darkness of unbelief in Satan, in that kingdom. The kingdom of Jesus and his love, his selfless love given charitably on behalf of people who don't deserve it. Amen? And the other selfless kingdom ruled by Satan manifested now in the archetype of all unbelievers, Judas. And they're all in the room. Pretty powerful stuff. And so the Holy Spirit through John is continuing to paint the beauty of Jesus' love against the backdrop of Satan's lovelessness manifested in Jesus. And so at this Last Supper, the Lord is loving to the end, them till the end. And in the midst, there's this Judas, influenced and in just a few verses possessed by the devil. And so John points out those forces and he tells us in verse three, he goes, he loves us, here's the enemy, and then he goes back to verse three. What does verse three says? He says that Jesus knew that the Father had put all things into his hands. That Jesus knew where he came from and where he was going. Jesus loved, Satan's got a plan, but Jesus knows the big picture. He knows what's going on. I love this. And so in the middle, he stands up, verse four, he gets up from supper and he laid aside his outer garment and taking a towel tied around his waist, he tied around his waist and then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. If you are reading for this, this for the first time, you're going, this is weird. Okay, because Christians, like we read this and we go, okay. But here's this guy, they're all gathered for dinner and then all of a sudden he gets up for dinner and he starts washing people's feet. How's that going over at your Thanksgiving? Just weird, right? This strange. What's going on here? And, and just a few chapters ago, there was kind of a, of, of a preface of this as we kind of talked about it. It was kind of looting forward to it. Remember Mary, what happened with Mary? The brother of, La uh, the sister of Lazarus, what happened? Yeah, she poured, anointed him. She washed his feet. She busted into the room. She anointed him with oil. We find out that it's, all, it's from his head to his toe and she is weeping and she's taking her hair and she is wiping his feet with her hair. She's washing his feet and everybody's just going, oh my gosh. And Judas is doing what? 
Like that could have been sold for something. He doesn't, he doesn't like anything to do with this. And there's this contrast going back and forth. It was just totally abrasive and unfitting. And this is what is going on. Here, here it is, the master of the ceremony gets up and he takes on the task of the lowly servant. And you got to realize people did a lot of walking in those days, a lot of Birkenstocks, a lot of sandals, right? A lot of mud. And uh, feet aren't the most glorious thing when they've been sweaty and all that stuff. And so they would have a water pot outside the door and, and it's customary for the lowliest person, the servant, to go and clean the person's feet as they come into the house so they don't... I mean, you know how it is in your house, right? Hey, take off your shoes. Although that's probably not the best sometimes, but you know what I mean? It's just like, take, you know, they clean their feet. And here they're all sitting at dinner. And they're not, by the way, sitting in chairs. They're leaning against one another. Their feet are probably right by each other's faces. Who knows what's going on there? It's not that Jesus said, I, you know, I've had enough of this. But it begs the question, why weren't their feet washed yet? What's the answer? You're right. No one, washed, no one had washed their feet. No one chose to do that. Instead, what were they arguing about? Oh, yeah. Instead, they're arguing about that. Who is the greatest? So Jesus, in the midst of their squabble about greatness, loving them to the end, he gets up. See, John's looking back. He's going, oh, man, he loved us. What did he do? He got up and washed their feet. Can you imagine what was going on in their hearts when he started to do that? They were shocked, and we know this because Peter opens his mouth. <laughs> He's the spokesman, right? And what does Peter say? Verse 6. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And the emphasis here in the Greek is on you and my. Lord, you wash my feet? Like this is, this is wrong in every way. This should not be happening. This wasn't like, uh, you know, it's just some Peter just, he knew his own sinfulness before the Lord. I mean, remember back in uh, Luke 5, 8, Jesus had just caused Peter to catch a great catch of fish, Right? And what does Peter say? When he saw that, that great catch, he, said, he fell on his feet, down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me, I am a sinful man. I mean, he knew his state before the Lord. This was the, he loved Jesus. I mean, he really loved Jesus. And, and that's, that's a, you know, this is the sentiment that Peter had. It's, it's just totally unfitting. This is not right that you are washing my feet, Lord. I am sinful. Don't, do not wash my feet. And Jesus answered in verse 7, what I'm doing now you do not understand. But afterward you will understand. Did Peter ever get it? You read Peter, and he talks about suffering. He says, after you suffer a little while, go and comfort others, right? And that's exactly what he did. Or Jesus said that to Peter. But Peter said to him, what does he say there? Verse 8, and Peter said to Jesus, one of his emphatic, glorious statements, you shall never wash my feet. You shall never wash my feet. 
Jesus says, Peter, you don't get it, but you will. And Peter, in typical Peter fashion, says, you will never wash my feet. And that word never, it means never. Like in the Greek, you go, you figure out what it means. It means like emphatically no. And it says like a bunch of words after that mean no. Like just no. Like Peter is all in. And this is just Peter's way. He is all in. I love Peter. Don't you love Peter? He is devoted to failure and whatever else he's going after. But <laughs> Peter just had a habit of getting the most important things wrong. Anyone else relate? In Matthew 26, 16 to 20, uh, 16, uh, sorry, I'm dyslexic this morning. In Matthew 16, 21 through 23, Jesus begins to tell the disciples that he's headed for the cross, right? That he must suffer many things at the hands of the chief priests and the elders and the scribes and then be killed. And Peter says to him, what? Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Same word. This is not happening to you. Peter was totally determined that nothing would happen to the Lord, and he showed it, as we'll see, when he took out a sword and cut off Malchus's ear at that night. He was determined. See, he was all in. This guy was, he loved the Lord. He was all in. And Jesus replies, get behind me, Satan. Why? For you are setting your mind on the things of God, but not on the things of what? Man, you can be totally all in and totally all wrong with the Lord. I'm so thankful he loves us to the end. Amen? And he tells Jesus he can't go to the cross. And we're going to see him, you know, pull out that sword and do that. He's, he's going to tell Jesus in just a few verses here in John that he would never betray him. Same thing. I will never betray you. And what does Jesus say? Read the end of, the, of chapter 13. Tell you what, three times you're going to do it. Or deny you, right? And now he tells Jesus, there's no way he's going to wash his feet. No way you're going to do that. I love Peter. I can so relate to him. He was so wrong, and yet Jesus loved him so completely. Tell the end, and Jesus replies in verse 8, if I don't wash your feet, if I don't wash you, he says, you have no share with me. You have no part with me. Check out verse 9. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my heads. My head, right? He says, you will never do this in one breath and the next breath, it's, you know, it's rubber ducky time. Like, let's get, you know, he went to the bath. Like, give me a bath. This hose me down. Peter was extreme. He was all in. Do you see him? You have to love Peter. He is all over the place. But if there's one thing that Peter desired more than everything, it was to be with Jesus. He loved Jesus. And that's the difference between Jesus and uh, Peter and Judas. And this whole chapter, it goes back and forth between the one who denied him and the one who betrayed him. There's a big difference, church. What happens? And we'll get to that next week. But Jesus says to Peter, if I don't wash you, 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 don't sh you don't have a share with me. Washing is a metaphor in scripture of spiritual cleansing. That's what it means. It's, it's always, you know, baptism, um, all the rites they went through, all those things. It's, it's a metaphor, it's a picture of spiritual cleansing. And Jesus is saying 
Lysias to Peter that our relationship with him is one where he cleanses us. He cleanses us. You have to let me do this. You have to let me cleanse you, Peter. You have to let me cleanse. And there's two senses in which he's using this word. One is salvation, one is sanctification. And that's what we're getting into. But 1 John 1, 8 and 9 says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We're, we're not born again. If we don't realize the need to be cleansed, the truth is not in us. See, that's a work of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit drives us to the solution, the Savior, which is 1 John 1, 9, the best verse, right? The next verse. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive give us our sins and to what? Cleanse us of how much unrighteousness? How much unrighteousness do you need to be cleansed of today? I like the word all. I'll take that. All unrighteousness. We confess, he cleanses. You see, Jesus cleanses us from sin. And that foot washing is symbolic of this. The one who doesn't let Jesus cleanse them has no part with them. They're not his. Because that is the relationship he has. He is the cleanser. Amen? Peter says to this, Lord, whatever it takes, wash my hands and my feet and my, heads too, my head too, right? But this is a response of a believer. Do whatever it takes, Lord. Do whatever it takes. Cleanse me. But Peter even then didn't really understand. He's sitting there and he's washing his feet and he's thinking, I've got to do this ceremony for you in order for you to be cleansed. Jesus is talking about spiritual matters Peter's just probably just going, okay, do I need to get baptized? Let's do that, whatever I got to do, right? Some of you have come to the Lord, you go, hey, you know, God, you say you got to go get baptized, let's get baptized. But you don't realize what he's talking about. And it's important that you understand what he's talking about, a spiritual cleansing. And so the response of a believer is, Lord, yes, cleanse me. But, and Peter didn't really understand. And so Jesus said to him, verse 10, the one who bathes does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are what? You're clean. But not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That's why he said you're not all clean. He's going back and forth, right? Judas is in the, in the room. Peter, you're already clean. You're saved. I mean, if that's not his life verse, I don't know what is it is. You know, Jesus... <laughs> Says to Peter, I, you're saved. That's an awesome, like, how, how cool is that? You're saved. It's just like if you take a shower, you don't need to go take a shower five minutes later. It makes sense. It's what he's saying. Like, if you're clean, you, you, the disciples most likely took a bath that morning. They got up, they went. It's like, you don't need another bath till later on tonight or tomorrow, right? But the analogy breaks down. But what Jesus is, is clearly saying is that once you're saved, you don't need to be born again again. When Jesus cleanses you and he makes you righteous, you're righteous. So what's he talking about? Washing your feet. He's saying the person who is born again doesn't need to be born again. You need to be sanctified. That's the Christianese word for it. Jesus is going to clean the dirt, of the, uh, the dirt of the world off your feet that you pick up as you travel through this life. As you sin, you need to be cleansed from that to restore your relationship with the Lord. It's not that positionally you're not saved. It's practically, it causes issues. 
broken relationships, all the manifestations of sin. Jesus continually cleanses. And this is a work of the Holy Spirit now in the life of the believer. Peter didn't understand this. You don't need to be born again. You're born again. And now you need to grow up. And I'm going to help you do that. I'm going to remove, you've been saved from the, the power, of, I'm sorry, the penalty of sin. But now the Holy Spirit is going to work on saving you from the power of sin in your life. And that's what happens in the life of a believer. Jesus prunes us. The Father prunes us. He prunes the dead things out of our lives. Amen? So that we would produce more fruit. And that's the relationship we have to the Lord. The Holy Spirit now sanctifies us. He sets us apart as he sets the worldliness apart from us and us towards God. That's what he's doing in our lives. Through conviction, through fellowship, through one another, through washing of one another's feet. That's what he's getting to. We're saved from that penalty, yes. But now the Spirit is working within us to remove that power of sin in our lives. He prunes it of our lives. He washes our feet feet because we get the dust and the mud of this world on them. Peter didn't need to be saved. He was cleansed. And how many of you need to hear that again? I'm saved because I believe in the finished work of Jesus Christ, but oh Lord, cleanse me today. Amen? But he says, not all of you are clean. Not all of you are saved. And what's he alluding to? Because he's talking to, he knows Judas. He knows his heart. And there's that backdrop. How dark is that darkness? How dark did you, would you have to be to be Judas? Think about it. You're, you're walking with Jesus. You've seen the miracles. You watched him heal people. You were on the boat when he calmed the waters. You watched him call Lazarus out, out of the grave. You've seen him do everything. You've heard the voice from heaven. You've been a part of all of it. And yet, what? He did not believe. He loved money. That was his deal. Great darkness. More on Judas next week. Verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he, sat, he said to them, Do you not understand what I have done to you? And the answer is no. Verse 13. You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash what? One another's feet. For I've given you an what? An example that you should do just as I've done to you. So Jesus' example for a believer is to, it, for following him is all wrapped up in this foot washing thing. Listen, church, this is so important. This is the key right here to you walking with Jesus Christ. You, you follow him. He is the head of the church, correct? Like he is, you want to know who's, who's the big cheese around here? It's him, right? And anyone who thinks they're a big cheese has the answer to him. So we've got to be careful. That's the, the stricter judgment James talks about, all that stuff, right? And hopefully we are, as a church, going to what Jesus says and we're just communicating what, what he wants to have happen in his church and we just obey him as the spirit provokes us, right? You know the, the practical application of washing feet. Like I'm going to be here to talk about washing feet and then the Lord's going to provoke you in your heart and go, this is how I want you to do that. I don't know that in your life. I don't know how that's going to work. I might if we sit down and talk, right? 
but he's the Lord and simply we're just under his word and he's going to convict you and compel you and encourage you and move you along in these ways. Amen? That's what the church does. We respond to him as the Holy Spirit works in your life. And so here, the, here Jesus is saying, this is the big picture, guys. This is it. Here the Lord of the universe washes feet. No one else wanted to do it. That's the picture, right? And the big picture that they did not get is this. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. This is kind of a synopsis. Have this mind among yourselves. Church, think like this. Which is yours in Christ Jesus? Who though he was in the form of what? God did not count it equality with God a thing to be grasped, a great thing to hold on to. But what did he do? He emptied himself. That's what it says. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. What position do you have in your life? What position do you have in your family, in your church, in, in anywhere? What does Jesus say to do? Don't hold on to that as something to be grasped at, but rather take that position and authority in God, that God has given you to be a servant of, of all. Does that make sense? Here Jesus is he, is, he doesn't go, I'm not Lord and I'm not whatever. He says, I am your Lord and I am your teacher, right? What does he say? If I being your Lord and your teacher, if I do this, and you are not as high as I am, what do you think you should be doing? Do the same. Do the same. And here's the verse. I'll just read it completely without stopping. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality to God a thing to be grasped, held on to, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he, what? Humbled himself, became obedient to the point of what? Death even the death on a cross. God became the lowest of men to cleanse us from our sin by laying down his life. That's the picture of the foot washing. And Jesus says to his disciples and to us, if I did this, if I'm your Lord and teacher, you ought to do the same. Love one another to death. And here's the thing. We know John 15, 13. John will say this later. It says, no greater love does someone have for someone else but to lay down your life for your friends? I love what John MacArthur says about this. He says, uh, he says yes, but you can only do that once. <laughs> you can only die once, right? <laughs> I just think that's so funny. I was just reading that going, yeah, because like, you wonder, okay, we're, we're to die. And this is why Paul says, I die how many times? I die daily. In other words, the cross is always in view. And if that's the necessary thing that happens, that you die for an unbeliever, you die for the Lord and his service and all those things, that will come. But we're not looking, walking around looking for those opportunities to die, right? To lay down our lives. That's, that's not what we're about because our witness to the world is our love for what? One another. We're looking for ways to die here, <laughs> to die to self, to take on the form of a servant, and how can I wash your feet? And how can I wash your feet? And how can I wash your feet? And what is it that you need spiritually? To, and, and, and I have a long way to grow in this. Anybody else? 
I love that. That's mine. I, we have a long way to grow. Um, just think it's great to, to, to sit there and go, we have a long way to grow. Lord, teach me to wash feet. And that's the picture. We lay down our lives in love for one another, just as Christ did. And now let me think. Look around the room. Do they get it yet? Look in the mirror. Do you get it yet? Like the, the disciples? I'm not basing whether I wash your feet or not based on whether you get it or not. This is love that Jesus came down when we, and, and he gave benevolently of his love to a people who did not get it, that they might get it, but you will. Loving like that, loving like Jesus. It's not about acquiring position and possessions. It's about following Jesus, taking him our cross. And if Jesus was king of kings and lord of lords, and he left his high estate and, had, and came down and became so humble, what do you do with your position and, and what are you have in your life and, and your stuff and all those things? You lay them down for his service, right? doesn't mean you give up your jobs and all that stuff. It means that they're all subject to him and to, to love one another with, amen? So Paul said, I die daily. I think that's the perfect example that every day might include that ultimate act, but in reality, it's this love being acted out. And Jesus wanted to show them how to love like this. And Jesus gave us that picture for his, as his sheep, the creator of the universe, who is face to face with God from all eternity, coming down, into the most humblest of places in a manger. <laughs> Not having a home in his ministry years. Dying for you. He died for you. This is not pretend. Someone died for you. Really died for you. Thought about you. Who would believe upon him so that you would. He knew the weight of your sin. He knew your failures. He knew all things. And yet, he died for you that your sins would be forgiven, that you would have him. Now, as Christians, we go do the same thing. I think that's what our brother was saying this morning as he was leading, right? We live it. Most people don't read the Gospels, but they're reading the Gospel. That's the Gospel. You. So, truly, truly, verse 16 I say to you, a servant is not what? Greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. And if you know these things, what is the, what is the thing he says? Blessed are you if you what? If you do them. This is what separates the sheep from the goats. This is what separates believers and non-believers. This is what separates Judas from Peter. Right? One did it and one didn't. Be encouraged. The Lord is calling you to walk in obedience this week in these things. And I just think, if you need help with how to wash feet, and this is where John is going, by the way. Love one another. This is, this is what he's getting into. Love one another. Not an ethereal love. Not, not kind of like a, oh, just whatever the world says is love. No, what Jesus says is love. If you need help with these things, read the book of First John. Pastor Marcus is teaching through it right now. And like at the Christian Aid Center, First John. It's practical love. If he says, if you say that you have love, or you say you have, you're born again, I forgot which, which verse it was, but you say if you have love and you see your brother in need and you don't help him out, you say, hey, go, go be filled, have a nice day. Uh, yeah, the love of Christ is not in you. 
That's, that's a lie. So he's, he gives you real practical things. If you see someone, if one of your brothers in need, and you know they're in need, help them, right? Well, how do you help them? Well, practically, but however God's gifted you to gift and, and give. This goes back to, and I know this is a little bit, bit of a tangent, but this is about, this, this wraps in the gifting of the church, that God has given you spiritual gifts within the church. Do you know that? You are not Matt. Matt is not you. You are individually gifted by God for the edification of the church. I need you. Amen? You fulfill a role in the body of Christ I could never fulfill. You know, say like, say I'm a mouth, whatever kind of mouth you do that is. And all of a sudden my arm decides not to show up for six months. How do you think that affects the body? It devastates the body. It devastates what it's supposed to be doing. And this is the thing is that love says I'm showing up, I'm connected, and I'm not just about being an arm, doing whatever I want, right? We're trying to hear what Jesus says and we're connected and we, and as the Holy Spirit orchestrates, we practically move our lives and that's gonna benefit the body of Christ and the world's gonna see how that works and they're gonna go, what is that? How come they love each other? How come they selflessly give one another? How come they're so connected to one another? How come they care when one other part of the body gets hurt? There's a tending and a caring that happens to it. You see? You're a part of that, and God's gifted you especially for that. And this is why he came down on the Corinthian church, because chapter 13, uh, sorry, chapter 12 was about tongues and prophecy. Chapter 14 is about tongues and prophecy, and we love to talk about tongues and prophecy, but what is chapter 13 about? show you more an ex- more excellent way love he says he's not denying the gifts he's not saying you've got to love and forget about the gifts that's not what he's saying he said the means of your gifting is love so how do you know what your gifts are in the body of Christ be in his word love god look for opportunity and guess what the holy spirit's going to do he's going to put it in front of you and you will, by nature of your relationship and connectedness to Jesus Christ, you're going to naturally act out what your giftings are. For me, I'm going to help ex- encourage, exhort, and teach and all those types of things. And people look at that and go, well, that's not practical. That's right. Where are you? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And I've got to grow in practical things too, but we're a body. Like, we need each other. We're connected, and that's how we're edified. I might encourage you on a Sunday, but someone's going to have to help practically help you out on a Monday. Or I might, you know what I mean? It's just saying we're just willing and ready to lay down our lives for one another because it brings glory to him. That's, that's what it is. And so what keeps us from doing that? What keeps us? The Lord just has to teach us. You know, some of you are in need right now, and you won't talk about it. Share your needs. Let the body of Christ be the body of Christ and let us love on you. And is that going to happen perfectly? As perfect as you guys are. (laughs) Me too, right? (laughs) We're working on it, right? Some of you are in need. Share your needs. And it's interesting. You know, when the body of Christ has, has those who are acting up and acting out, what does the body of Christ do with it? It deals with it. Perfectly? No. But we start to lovingly try to encourage and, 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 and teach and, and, and grow up 
those members in our body that, that aren't mature. Is it great to have baby Christians about? Amen, praise the Lord. But, you know, baby Christians who are supposed to be a little bit further along and aren't, that's unfitting. And so we come along in love and we encourage. And those of us who are more ornery or whatever it might be need to be mellowed out. And God just has a way of working things out in the body of Christ as we love one another. And here, and here Jesus says this, practically wash each other's feet. Get into each other's lives. And, and you know, I have the excuses that I'm a private person and all that stuff. I am. so what? <laughs> or I'm an introvert, so what? I'm afraid of people, so what? I have depression, so what? Obey Jesus. Love one another, and God will, I think he'll bring healing to us as we just simply obey him in these things, right? And so I look forward to getting to, you know, getting to know you even more and also just to watch God work through you guys as you love one another. And guys, this can't be programmed out. You know, we have structures, we have places and things where you can gather together, but it just comes to you, you just going, you know what, Lord, I'm going to love you, and this is the church that we're a part of, and you know what, okay, I'm, I'm going to commit to this, and you just commit yourself to a group of people or a person in a relationship or whatever it is, and you just pour yourself out, and you're going to find out that there are glorious things about that brother and sister, and then you're going to also see big, giant, gaping holes in their, in their character and their life because we're a body and we need one another. We need Jesus to grow us up in one another. Amen? So I appreciate your prayers for me <laughs> as you see all those issues. <laughs> and and, I, and, and I, just, I just want us to, to see Jesus. If, if this is the example that he gave, and he is truly the Lord of Christ Community Fellowship, then what? Lord Jesus, take over and, and do, may you do that in the heart of our church, amen? And each of you has an amazing role within that. And I look forward to seeing the Lord do that and work on you. Next week, a little bit of Judas and, and Peter, amen? Lord God, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for the day that you have made. Thank you for the church you have called us into and blood bought us into and Lord, far be it from us that we have a better idea than you did. Um, teach us to wash feet. Forgive us for jockeying over position. And uh, Lord, open our minds to the things we don't understand yet, that we might love one another more fully, that we might obey you to death and to the death of self. And so, uh, Lord, in that process, may my prayer no longer be just for me, although my needs are many. But Lord, as you, as you taught your disciples to pray, you know, thy will be done. And Lord, I love how it was, it's all plural there. Give us our daily bread. It's not just me, it's us. Forgive us our sins. Lead us not into temptation. Lord, let that love abound in the heart of your church and bless each one of us as we bless you. And may, Lord, we see those rich, powerful blessings that you promised in this verse if we do what you say. May those blessings be poured out abundantly and may we take those blessings and pour them out again into others. And it's in your name we ask. Amen.